Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Hello. Please join me in welcoming our guest in this episode, Battalion Chief Thomas Smith from the Cal Fire Nevada Uber Placer Unit and the Placer County Fire Department. Smith started his career in 2005 as a firefighter with the North Tahoe Fire Protection District. Over the course of his 17-year career, he's promoted through the ranks from Firefighter 1 to his current position as a Field Battalion Chief in the Cooperative Fire Agreement with Placer County Fire, while also expanding his skill set to include leading California's inmate firefighters to competing against the world's best off-road drivers. Chief Smith is a qualified Air Operations Branch Director and is currently assigned to Incident Management Team 1. He's served on numerous regional and statewide teaching cadres. He graduated from California State University, Chico, with a Bachelor of Arts degree in Liberal Studies and holds an Associate of Science degree from Sierra College in Fire Technology. He resides in Truckee, California with his wife and two kids. Thank you for tuning in to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. Chief Smith, welcome. Patty, thank you for having me on today. And I have to give a shout out to our mutual friend, FDNY firefighter and Leadership Under Fire teammate, Jake Dutton, for putting us in touch. Yes, Jake's been a close friend and uh, known him since the beginning of my fire service career, and he is a hometown hero of the North Tahoe area. He's great. Chief, I think I mentioned to you that outside of New York, the highest number of downloads we see for this podcast are from California. So it's so great that we have you on the show today. I know listeners are going to really enjoy it and value it. So Chief, can you share with our listeners a brief description of your upbringing and your path to joining the fire service? Absolutely, Patty. I was uh, was born in California in the Sacramento Valley in an area close to the town of Roseville and uh, grew up boating in the summers and skiing in the winters and um, had a upbringing that involved scouting, uh, team sports and uh, personal sports, soccer, baseball, mountain biking, like a lot of uh, West Coast kids coming up and uh, through those and uh, the scouting outdoors became a very common thing. From there, after high school, I started working in construction and going to college, went to Cal Poly Pomona, transferred to Chico State, and did a semester overseas in New Zealand at the University of Wellington. And all throughout that time, I continued my outdoor activities and also working in ski patrol in the greater Tahoe area. Mm -hmm. And uh, after that, I got introduced to the fire service and Joining the fire service, I don't think there was one particular thing. And looking back, it was a myriad of them. But Mm -hmm. I definitely have an uncle on the East Coast that was a volunteer on Long Island. Had Mm -hmm. another uncle that was uh, NYPD. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the classmates in college that were working seasonal firework during the summers, um, 
played a huge role in leading me down that road to the fire service. And mm-hmm. here I am now, 17 years later, talking to you. Do you mind giving a little bit more background as to what drew you to the fire service? Like, how did you actually get introduced to the idea of becoming a firefighter? Like I mentioned in college, a couple of uh, my classmates would come back after each summer talking about uh, fighting fire for, at the time, CDF, California Department of Forestry, and what a great time it was, how hard of work it was, but the, the experiences and the team building and the friendship that they made. And then mm. uh, one of my neighbors, her father, was a fire chief in the Santa Cruz area mm-hmm. and got to know him. And he also definitely fostered that that drive and interest in the fire service and steered me in the right path to apply. And mm-hmm. along with that, that emergency response and uh, EMS side of ski patrol has a huge following by the fire service as well. So as I was working at the ski resort, ski patrolling, mm-hmm. many of those fellow co-workers were already in the fire service mm-hmm. and they introduced me to it more and more and talked about it. And as I graduated from college with a degree in education, I realized that I might never use it and I was going to head down the fire service path. (laughs) That's interesting. And you mentioned ski patrol, and I'm going to ask you about that later on, but you have worked in various capacities as a firefighter or since becoming a firefighter. So can you share some of them and why you chose this trajectory for your career? Absolutely. So getting introduced to the fire service in the Tahoe Basin, um, uh, the first avenue I got introduced to the fire service was on a fuels crew doing defensible space, um, fuels reduction, chipping, and uh, defensible space inspections for North Tahoe Fire and I ended up working for them as a firefighter and then moving on to Cal Fire at the time, CDF, and uh, became a firefighter with them. Mm-hmm. From there, as a firefighter, one, we call it, uh, I was on an engine for the first couple of years, and the avenues that Cal Fire has are broad, and I got introduced to aviation and their rotor wing side of things and uh what what we call helitech and a helitech crew and i left my current unit and became a helitech firefighter up in the last and modoc unit and after that i was able to promote up to a driver operator we call it a fire apparatus engineer and um that's where my first leadership role I guess in the fire service started where I led an engine crew mm-hmm. and that allowed me to continue to move up and I ended up being on an engine crew for almost five years before becoming a base manager at one of our air take air attack bases mm-hmm. where we managed uh, two tankers and one air attack for fighting wildland fire mm-hmm. so then as that progressed more and more um I ended up taking on the role as a fire captain uh, running an inmate crew, and that's something that is definitely unique um, and different and tries you every day with your patience and your motivation and your leadership. Did you say um, uh, an inmate crew? 
affirmative. So there's a there's a relationship that Cal Fire and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation has, and we would run 18 person inmate hand crews to fight fire. Wow. So, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun, and uh, at the end of the day, you look back at the amount of work you were able to c- accomplish with that size of a crew, and uh, it, it was impressive to say the least. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to interrupt you. So I'm I continue sorry. on your list of of amazing <laughs> yeah. accomplishments over the course of your 17 no. year career. Right? No, it's it, it's been a whirlwind, but it's been <laughs> great. So after that, I I chose to go back to the station life and. Uh, as a fire captain, took on uh, a station at the headquarters in the Mendocino unit and <clears throat> got to spend a lot of time there working with uh, some very highly motivated individuals. And mm-hmm. the opportunity came to promote to the position I'm in now as a field battalion chief. And I took a field battalion in the San Benito Monterey unit, and it's a very rural ranch land brush covered coastal mm. influence area that uh, gave me two years of just very extensive good fire behavior and experiences as well in the last year I finally got the opportunity to transfer back closer to home where I I'm not commuting four hours to my job each time I jumped on that and now I'm in a little different capacity where we call it a cooperative agreement for municipal fire protection or a schedule a contract and mm-hmm. i run a field battalion with a partner that consists of three stations with a total of three engines and one truck company and then mm-hmm. we also oversee four volunteer fire companies so it definitely is a change but it is a it's good it keeps me on my toes so and then mixed in with all that um i've always dabbled a little bit with uh, the incident management teams, and I've been a member on a type one incident management team for the since 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of different cadres over the years, uh, teaching classes ranging from chainsaw or basic firefighter uh, classes up to and including uh, firing techniques uh, for our pre- prescribed fire avenues. So kept me busy but it's a passion and I love it I mean we could spend the rest of our time today just unpacking this entire (laughs) resume that you have it's fascinating to me because I am from the east coast and what's happening out on the west coast is so wildly different the way things are in the terrain I mean it just is so interesting to me but I guess the question that I want to ask that's universal is why did you choose this path to continuously learn new skills, continuously take on new responsibilities and just keep, you know, expanding your skill set? I think about that often. And uh, in the beginning, that that seasonal work was appetizing to me. It allowed me to ski and ski patrol during the winter, fight fire during the summer as the seasons changed my job did and now since going permanent it became a a little more consistent but the opportunities that cal fire and uh the department as a whole has to offer from busy truck companies down in riverside to uh very remote engines 
uh, step deep, deep in the forest to our aviation program. We have the largest aerial firefighting fleet in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, You could work in the desert. You can work in the timber. You could work on the coast. You can work in our cooperative fire agreements, providing municipal fire protection. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that kind of transpired from the changing of the seasons and work to the opportunities can change even, but I now have the consistency of a good uh, job in the fire service with benefits and allowed me to now also have a family and kids and Mm -hmm. that lifestyle. I don't know how you have the time for it, but I'd like to highlight some of the activities you're involved in outside of the fire service. (laughs) Starting. I I don't know how you have enough hours in the day, but um, I understand that you are involved in the Baja 1000, which is one of the most prestigious off-road races in the world, taking competitors and their crews on a 1,000-mile point-to-point race across the Baja Peninsula of Mexico. And you previously worked as crew chief, logistical and planning manager, and race support team member for both the Baja 1000 and then another event, um, San Felipe 250. Chief, can you tell our listeners about this experience, what it entails, and what are the challenges associated with this event? Absolutely. So like you said, um, I I worked on an off-road race team that was affiliated with a couple of different uh, races and series, and it was a huge benefit early in my career when I when I did have more time and wasn't as focused um, and it was crazy how many things crossed over between fire and, uh, and off-road racing and that team environment. But uh, we, we would, uh, again, I would crew chief for them. We, we would develop that planning cycle, just like we use in the fire service and utilize it to plan that race. And it's obviously um, not just a few hours. There's a time limit usually in the, um, day and a half range, but we would have multiple support vehicles, multiple pit stops with fuel, spare parts, the logistics of housing, feeding, sleeping, moving all the support personnel. It all transpires over from pretty much utilizing the ICS system and having your right. finance, logistics, operations, and planning. And it, it, it was a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun because I'll tell you what, we got to go to Mexico twice a year and mm-hmm. it was all business up to and through the end of the race but it then it also transitioned into a vacation afterwards a lot of times <laughs> and with a lot of good people and uh, what better place than Baja California so we uh we raced a 7200 truck which um a lot of people are probably familiar with a trophy truck it's not quite to that level but it still goes extremely fast and it uh, also requires a lot of maintenance and support. So Mm -hmm. we took a lot of people down there and uh, some of those logistical or um, experiences that we had to deal with and challenges, just getting that many people across international borders and traveling and living in Northern California. And a lot of the team was out in Nevada as well. Mm-hmm. You're talking 12 hours just to get to the border and then um, almost 24 hours to get to the tip of Baja. And then that's where you finish and you got to get everyone home as well. 
Mm-hmm. And then the communications, radios, cell phones, uh, just the, down to the little tiniest thing of making sure everyone has uh, their phones moved over for Mexico data and plans. And then uh, building that trust because you do have pit crews stretched hundreds of, hundreds of miles apart that you're trusting them to follow the plan and make the right decisions as to benefit the team mm-hmm. to get that truck through that race into the finish line. So we were continually just using that management cycle on planning, organizing, staffing, directing, controlling, evaluating, and just mm-hmm. moving back around and communicating that through. And then uh, some, some races we didn't even make it halfway and we'd break down and we'd have to call it some races. We were very successful and, uh, as a race team, it was phenomenal. But as a race community, it's it's just like the fire service. Yeah, you have your station level, your department level, and then the whole fire service as a family. It was very similar in the racing community. There are so many parallels there. I think. Agreed. And you mentioned the ski patrol earlier, so you're also a member of the ski patrol community and have been an active member of the Tahoe Nordic Search and Rescue Team for several years. For those who don't know, can you explain how the Tahoe Nordic Search and Rescue Team works? Absolutely. So in the mid to late 70s, there was a lost skier, young boy, who uh, skied off the backside of a resort. The search ensued, but there was not a lot of great organization or team or way to dispatch a backcountry alpine search. So Mm -hmm. from that search developed the Tahoe Nordic Search and Rescue Team, and they are a a nonprofit that functions off of donations and mainly one fundraiser a year, which is our great ski race, which is a a cross-country ski race 30 kilometers long from the Tahoe Basin up over the summit to Truckee. And that has funded it over the years almost exclusively. And then a lot of times as we assist and rescue a lost person, those donations roll in as well. And uh, that's how they are funded. We're Mm -hmm. mobilized through the sheriff's office. The sheriff Mm -hmm. will get a report of a missing person or a search and rescue. And then the request will go out for Tahoe Nordic Search and Rescue. And we'll mobilize. And a lot of the times members are just making their way with whatever over the snow piece of equipment they have. So mm-hmm. skis, snowmobiles, snowcats. And then we also have a comm unit, which is a van. And we'll make it to a meeting point near where the last known spot was and work with the sheriffs and any other um, emergency response personnel and We'll go out there and one of the things we pride ourselves on is our ability to know the area the greater north tahoe area mm-hmm. and to be able to go out in almost any conditions so um, a lot of times people will wait for first light and that's just not in the mo of the team we will try to get out there and affect the rescue as long as we can and i think that's where we'll head is talking about that uh mental performance of the team. Mm -hmm. 
Well, just so I really appreciate that, what are some of the challenges associated with backcountry search and rescue? Because again, coming from, you know, East Coast city girl, the way you just described how this this patrol is funded and how it's mobilized is very different than what I'm used to. So what are some of the challenges your patrol well, deals with? Absolutely. So that the Nordic team, they the biggest one we always deal with is weather, right? It, if it's nice weather and good conditions, people aren't necessarily asking for help or getting lost because they're, they're not as disoriented. So it's usually nightfall. It's usually storm conditions, heavy snow. So just battling the environmental conditions is a huge ch uh, challenge for us. Um, sometimes the frustration uh, of people that are going out of bounds out of a ski area, that, that can be a mental toll on you getting frustrated that because of their poor decision-making they're endangering themselves and causing this large-scale search to happen. The other challenges go to the coordination and cooperation between the ski resort if they are going off-piste or side country or back country from that resort mm -hmm. uh, with the sheriffs or even sometimes it's a early season storm that'll hit and catch hikers um, off guard and that they need assistance getting out of the back country or off of a mountain. So those are some huge challenges for sure. And finding that person and if they are out in the back country lost, knowing their last known location helps, but then they might've traveled from there. With mm -hmm. that said though, uh, some of the successes and I, I one in particular was uh, some Boy Scouts who chose to go and get lost but they were savvy enough with their technology that they are able to uh, drop pins and uh, relay their exact location from their phones which made it at least easy we had to cover the ground to get to them but we knew exactly where they were yeah I'm happy to hear that um, positive ending to that story but I'm sure there are plenty others that don't always end with such a positive outcome so I wanted to ask you, do you believe the members of the Nordic search and rescue team are unique from a human performance perspective? Absolutely, 100%. The, I, I'm a member and, uh, and a part of this team, but some of these individuals are just absolute specimens mentally, physically, uh, team building wise, and to highlight the fact that it's all volunteer as well. Um, mm. I think that that really hits on that collective will of them wanting to be there and having that mindset to uh, really for the greater good of saving someone and putting everything they have on hold that evening in the middle of the night for multiple days. Um, they, uh, they are really a special breed over there. Definitely have my respect. Bringing it back to firefighting, uh, members of the Leadership Under Fire team have gained great insight regarding the complexities involved with structural firefighting and the impacts this has on firefighters. Can you shed some light on the challenges and complexities associated with fighting wildland fires? Absolutely. And I, I think Leadership Under Fire a lot of times identifies 
the fire service as tactical athletes and mm-hmm. one of the in, in a very close parallel the common term over here is industrial athletes okay and we we find ourselves being that industrial athlete and trying to uh fulfill a job that is very physical so just that wildland firefighting side of things the the size of these fires that we're getting are just astronomical when we're having fires that are a million acres now um Mm. we have the destruction of not hundreds not thousands but even tens of thousands of homes being burnt and uh that they're huge challenges to overcome and stay motivated as you're going into the umpteenth day of that firefight and it feels like you're losing but you know that everything and every day is getting closer to fulfilling that plan and having that plan be successful and turning the corner on that fire. So it, the other challenges are the cooperation that is happening between the uh, large forest agencies, the local government fire departments that are assisting us, mm-hmm. um, the Office of Emergency Services at the state level, at the community level, um, the sheriff's departments that have a key role in that emergency in that county and the evacuations that are happening. It's, uh, it's exhausting and, and, uh, intricate. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a lot of times in the structural firefighting world, we talk about building that box and that box is, uh, a lot of times room and contents, Mm -hmm. uh, structure of origin or block of origin. And it's, it's hard to, it's a little hard to swallow when the box becomes between this river to the north, this river to the south, a mountain range to the east, and the valley floor to the west. That That's a big box and kind of hard to swallow sometimes. Yeah, but I like the way you just um, described that. It does help you kind of wrap your head around the scale. And you mentioned uh, working on up to the umpteenth day. But really, on many occasions, you are working upwards of a month or more straight, bouncing from fire to fire throughout the state. So how do you navigate this heavy workload, which you just described, both professionally and personally? It's, <laughs> it's, it's hard to juggle. Professionally, you trust that back at home, your engine crews, your stations are taking care of business while their partners are out with with us fighting large-scale fires and sometimes that's that's even the harder part because they are day in day out not getting a rest work cycle because they're stuck at the station covering the station for the month that their shift partners are gone for and and i think that wears mentally and physically on those guys as well so as much as we a lot of times think the frontline firefighters on these large-scale fires are getting work to the bone and mm-hmm. not to discredit it they are the guys back at the stations are are carrying the weight of everyone that's gone as well so that that uh you have to have that family not only at the station but at home and mm-hmm. that team um i know for a lot of our younger seasonals some some of the things we do is suggest that they have their mom or uh, a sibling sign up on their bank account so that if they need to move money or 
deposit checks or get some bills paid while they're gone, um, that can happen. And it's a lot easier now with technology and tablets and phones and stuff. But it, it's something you got to think about is making sure home's taken care of and not just the home front of the firehouse, but where you lay your head on your off days, having that strong family and that strong spouse. And then how, I, how do we navigate that heavy workload? It's building that team. And what, when you're at that station, knowing what each person's expertise is and putting that right person on the right job. Um, like we talked about, whether it's logistics or planning or operationally and being part of that incident management team, that's exactly what we do. Every single person on that team has signed up and applied to be in the position that they're filling and they want to be there. It, it, there's no extra money. There's no extra benefit to being on an incident management team except for the love of the job. So I, I feel it's critical putting the right people in the right jobs. So then how do you maintain mission focus and motivate your crews and ensure peak performance and continue to play to win? And I'm using air quotes around that as members of the leadership under fire team would say. <laughs> you, you, it's hard. It's hard because you got to, uh, you got to make sure you're playing to win, but you want to make sure you guys, your, your crew is. And mm -hmm. you, I think the biggest one is you got to care. And uh, you got to care about the job. You got to make sure you're caring about yourself, but you got to care about them. And you got to do that through communicating, um, finding out how they're doing, not just on the fire that day, if they're getting rest, but you got to communicate with them. How's things going at home? What's going on in your life? And Because if you're going to play to win, I need your head in the game. And uh, building that relationship and getting to know them on a on a much higher level than I would think any normal office job coworker would, mm -hmm. and and it happens. I think we all see it in the fire service because you become a family, and that border drops significantly in the evenings when you become that family. So you got to stay positive uh, that you get in that grind. But I think a lot of us find that grind that safe place or that comfort area where once, once you know you're working and working hard, that's what you're supposed to be doing. And it's, uh, embracing, embracing that grind in a way, each person's motivated a little differently. So mm -hmm. if, if they're not embracing that grind, you got to find out what it is to keep them ready and motivated. Sometimes it is deviating a little bit from that daily uh, schedule and and finding that time time to do what what well and what it is what allows them to reset <laughs> okay what allows them to recover and mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times on a large-scale fire we're 24-hour shifts with the state so we work 24 on 24 off mm -hmm. and that 24 off is uh r and r time and if they need to just shut down and rest and not be um, part of the crew because that's what allows them to recoup and be resilient and be ready for the next day. If you see that, hey, we need to just go have coffee and uh, not maybe do breakfast at base camp and we're going to just do our own thing before coming in, 
mm-hmm. um, whatever it is, making sure, reminding the guys, hey, you need to call your families. You need to let them know because our minds are busy with this fire and their minds are busy wondering about us and if they haven't heard from you. And that that's where it's huge with FaceTime, with technology. Yeah. But it's also always fun to swing by that gas station in the middle of nowhere that has a postcard. And you, you buy a handful <laughs> of them and some stamps and you give them to all the guys and say, hey, we're sending some postcards home. Mm-hmm. And uh, hopefully we get home before they get there, but more than likely not. And that family, they'll know. And uh, that's a huge morale boost when they get a phone call from home saying, hey, we got that postcard. We got, mm-hmm. uh, we know you're thinking about us and we're thinking about you. Absolutely. Thanks for unpacking that. You also mentioned the word resilient. So what role does resilience play in maintaining readiness? Uh, uh, absolute critical role across the board. And I think we're, we're seeing it from the top down becoming a priority. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not all the way there yet, but it, it's nice to see that forward motion and that resilience mentally, emotionally, physically is uh, critical. So uh, mm-hmm. on these large scale fires, now we're seeing everything from our employee support services that uh, help our employees process and deal with anything uh, from family issues to the death and destruction to maybe that uh, emotional or mental hurdle that they're not getting over and not allowing them to be in their peak performance. So mm-hmm. that's one of the things, everything from we have, uh, they're bringing emotional support dogs and seeing the benefit of that and these dogs that are trained to uh, go on point almost and notify their handler when someone's exhibiting mm. extreme amounts of stress before they might even notice that they're exhibiting that amount mm-hmm. of stress. Um, so resilience it's the recovery and uh if we're not resilient and process everything that we're doing i feel like it's just going to be cumulative and eventually our human performance that you guys as leadership under fire focus on so much mm-hmm. that that is going to suffer if we don't focus on how to be resilient and strong and recover from the uh the battles that we go through then ultimately our job is going to suffer from it and our performance. Yeah, I agree with that statement. It sounds like you, your teams, your the organizations you're working with all are being proactive rather than reactive about prioritizing that. So that's interesting to hear. In terms of the scope and scale of wildfires over the past few decades, it seems like every year wildfires make headlines as being the most destructive and extreme fire behavior ever seen before. So what do you attribute this to and what do you believe is the solution? That, that's a big question, Patty. And I don't <laughs> think I have all the answers, but I, I think I can touch on a few things that are key and important. And the three big factors that influence fire are fuel, weather, and topography. Mm-hmm. And the fuel being the vegetation and uh, we're starting to turn the corner on vegetation management and forest resilience. It's it's funny that we just left 
human resilience. And then in the very next question, I'm talking about forest resilience and how it can handle the stress of fires. But uh, for the last hundred years, we've suppressed fires on the West Coast and that the fuel loading has continued to increase. And uh, the fire resilient topography has had fire out of it for so long that it's hard for it to be resilient now. And then, like I said, weather, um, we're definitely seeing that change in the weather and the hotter and drier seasons. And uh, we're back in a drought in California again this year. So topography wise, mountains don't really change quickly or often, but Mm -hmm. where we see people moving out of the cities and building their homes in relation to the topography on these ridge tops in the saddles where fires like to run and burn and burn hot it it is not conducive to wildland fires and having those homes in that wildland urban interface so Mm -hmm. those three things are big but uh, also the population increase on the west coast has just continued to skyrocket and and uh, go through the roof and on a macro macro scale people are moving more Mm -hmm. rural and more rural and on the micro scale just during covid the increase of people moving out of the cities and out of the urban areas into the rural areas that's Mm -hmm. uh that's just more people more homes more population and with human caused fires being the number one starts when you increase humans you're going to that statistic is going to go up as well Mm-hmm. So I think uh, the solution, and we're moving towards that, is land stewardship and uh, that forest health and forest resilience. And we're pushing towards prescribed fire and eventually getting to 500,000 acres a year in California mm-hmm. um, treated. And then education. Um, education is critical. And it's hard. Fire service is so operational and education mm-hmm falls on that prevention side so motivating the guys to get out and educate the public um, it takes time as well and they they usually say it's five to seven years before you see the return on investment on that education but i i I truly believe it's far more beneficial than trying to legislate um, safety and compliance through law Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, thank you for that insight, tackling my very broad question. Um, <laughs> I, I'm really excited to have you on the show today and to speak to you about some of these things, because it's obviously something that um, I think will resonate with our listeners. And it brings me to my next question, which is, you know, you entered the rank of battalion chief several years ago. So can you speak to the challenges that are associated with that rank and the diverse set of challenges you're faced with when being one of the first chiefs to arrive at what turns out to be a major incident or fire? Yes. Um, That promotion from fire captain to battalion chief was hands down the biggest step in my career and the biggest change in my career. Um, You go from being a part of a crew to now being assigned to your own piece of equipment. Um, When you walk into the fire station, you have a battalion, but those captains have their stations and they have their crews and you are still part of it, but in a different capacity. And it's hard. You you definitely step away from that crew life 
and uh, you're, you're now a, a manager, a supervisor, and a leader, and you have to know when to be each one of those mm-hmm. and what type of manager and uh, what type of leader, a servant leader or uh, a coaching leader, visionary, how, however it is. And kind of like I was talking about getting to know how your guys recover and how, how do they exist. You got to know each one to kind of know how to lead and supervise those guys. So um, it, it's been a struggle. Um, it, it always is, especially as you transfer back and you haven't been in a unit for a while. Everyone's a little leery. They want to know what you're doing and how you're doing it. And you have to prove yourself in a way, Mm. but uh, conversely, you also, that expectation of your, your new crew, you're supervising, you want them to prove themselves and uh, make sure that you're holding that bar for yourself, but also to them for a standard. So um, when you come on to that major incident in our fire is, I think the biggest thing is, relying on your experiences and whatever process you use to manage that incident, but having that strong command presence and really setting that tempo for the remainder of the incident, mm-hmm. um, that first five minutes of you performing a size up and a good strong report on conditions can really put that train on the track uh, of success or um, just a con- continuous battle and reassessment. But those are universal things, I think, when it comes to the fire service. So I appreciate that. But again, we've we've only really begun to explore the mental component of operations against the wildland firefighting community. So in your opinion, what are the most critical elements of optimizing human performance in wildland firefighting? And what are the biggest human performance challenges that the wildland firefighting community faces? And again, a big a big question. So just like I am right now, that's a very broad question and uh, I'm putting my thoughts together and you get to a large scale wildland fire and you can kind of be lost at sea just looking for shore. Like where, where is this going? Where am I going with this? And, uh, and sometimes you just have to ask yourself, how, how, did, how do you eat that elephant? And you got to just take one bite at a time and you're breaking it down and Sometimes immediately on a fire, you're not just breaking it down into engine assignments. You're breaking it into divisions with the plan to branch it out because it's a rapidly expanding incident. And uh, you're developing that plan with the expectation that you're going to be evaluating it really quickly and possibly changing that plan if it's not working because of fire behavior, because of resource ordering the flex time for those resources to come in and uh, that that mental process and stress that it puts on you is significant but you have to trust in your process and your planning cycle that you use and the training so the biggest human performance challenges are getting yourself or your crew mentally trained mentally response ready and well mm-hmm. and that that comes from i think it loops back and it ties into everything but that fitness and and diet and rest work cycle is critical to being mentally optimal in your performance excellent does that kind of touch on what you're thinking patty 
Yeah, absolutely. I know it's a broad question. So I know we're keeping the answers broad as well, because we could spend a lot of time dissecting each thing. But it's, um, it's interesting to hear how universal some things are. And, and this is one of them. It's yeah, only the application absolutely. that's contextual, right? That's, that's the saying. So yes, and I, I think we've seen it. I'm, I think last year on the Dolan fire out in uh, Monterey, we, we ended up getting an incident management team from FDNY out there, or maybe it was at least just a large amount of mm-hmm. members from FDNY that came out and helped manage. And I, I think it's excellent. What better way to break down borders and coordinate and cooperate with some people from the East Coast and bring a lot of ideas to the table? Right. Fresh thoughts. Absolutely. Chief, during your career, you've had the opportunity to work for a considerable number of leaders. So I wanted to know, were there any that had a profound impact on you and who were they and why? The list is long, but the three that I'm thinking of immediately are, uh, he was my battalion chief, John Messina at the time, and he's now a unit chief for the Butte unit in Cal Fire. And he, he was just everything you'd want out of a a leader and a supervisor. When it was time to be a supervisor, he would be. When it was time to team build and train, he'd be right there. He was that coaching leader, visionary leader. He he not only saw where he wanted to go or thought the department should go, but he he was a visionary for each of his employees and fostered that and got you trainee assignments to get out and get qualifications so john messina for sure christine york was my fire captain when i first started um she was my engineer when i first started and then became my fire captain and the care she had for the employees just epitomized that servant leadership and then uh the one that is a kind of wild card he uh he wasn't part of our department he worked at the air base for the U.S. Forest Service as an air attack officer. His name's Todd White, and uh, he had just a phenomenal career of operational experiences and excellence, and his humility or hum, humble stature that uh, you found it out through stories and visits from his crew that would come, and you knew he was just a leader, that quiet leader. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was ground truth. He had the street credit. And uh, you could see it across the board, not only by the, the crew that worked at the airbase, but as the Tahoe hotshots would roll by, they'd all get out and make sure they'd come over and say hi to Todd, see how he's doing, talk to him about the good old times. And and I, I think that, that truth, the verification of a leader is when people are coming back and checking in on you and uh, seeing how you're doing and kind of paying tribute to them almost. So three different people, three different places in my career and definitely three different leaders in different ways. But all very impactful and important. Another leadership trait you've mentioned throughout this conversation has to do with the moral obligation, I think. You know, in recent years, we've seen several devastating wildfires ravage communities throughout California some of which carried a death toll never recorded previously. 
So this brings to light many moral and ethical challenges amongst all ranks, but especially for you being in a leadership role. Can you discuss some of the moral and ethical hurdles you and your crews have had to navigate in the face of such tragedy? Yes, I, th I think the, uh, the biggest hurdle is so much of your career is spent fighting fire, protecting property, and, and life comes very naturally. It's when we get these large-scale fires and we are completely dropping the firefighting aspect because the life preservation, not only of yourself, but also of the civilian constituents is the number one priority and really the only achievable goal. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it, that's a hard pill to swallow when you're not even addressing in a way what is normally a priority or a goal in fire suppression. Mm -hmm. And you are just simply prioritizing life preservation. And we saw that 2016, 2017 with the East Bay fires, 2018 with the car fires, mm -hmm. 2020 with the Creek fire. It, and it's the hardest part is it's just been year after year. And, uh, and we're seeing how that struggle has played a toll on some of our employees and how their resilience is suffering from it. Well, I guess as we begin to wrap up today, then from a strategic foresight lens and moving forward, where do you see the wildland firefighting community headed? Uh, I, I think we're going to continue to move forward. And uh, as our fire seasons get longer, so, so will our staffing and moving towards that year round model and, uh, possibly even going to a full-time, uh, not just a seasonal model, but a year-round model with mm -hmm. fuels treatment and uh, fuels resilience, forest resilience focus in the off-season. I don't, I don't see fires getting smaller, not in the short time frame or even in my career. So what I'd like to see as well, though, is continuing to put our mission in the welfare of our people in front of the image of our institutions and making sure that if we build our base, which is our people strong, that mm -hmm. the department will be stronger as a whole. That's very well said, Chief. What advice would you offer to the younger leaders and new members of the fire service? <laughs> Get out there. Get out there and learn. Be, be that student of fire, whether it's structural, whether it's rescue, whether it's wildland, study it, live it, learn it, love it, get out of your comfort zone. As soon as you get comfortable, you become stagnant. And as soon as you're stagnant, you're not growing or contributing to the level you could be. So grow, uh, be prepared to fill that next role. Even if you're not ready to be prepared to fill that next role, because you don't you don't always know what's going to happen through attrition, retirement, injuries, or, or just in that split moment on that emergency if you need to fill that role. So learn. That's excellent. And I, I want to go on record here and recognize that I threw about 20 questions at you, Chief, in less than 60 minutes. So thank you so much <laughs> for taking them all on. I've tried to be quiet and sit back and just listen and let all of our listeners 
digest everything that you have to share, which I'm sure we just scratched the surface. So I want to leave uh, on a note where, you know, people can kind of learn more for themselves. So I understand that you're an avid reader and I wanted to know what approach do you take to reading and what role does it play in helping to optimize human performance and leadership? I, I do enjoy reading. I start many books and I, I finish uh, significantly less than I start. But um, what I would say is it, it plays a great role in that because like I just got done saying, learning is that what a great avenue to learn from and and that mindful space and time that you get when you're reading is is important not only for your personal growth but your resilience and uh, some of the books that I enjoy reading that I feel has helped me are just documentaries adventure um, obviously being that student of fire a lot of fire-based books and the more I listen to leadership under fire and other podcasts the leadership series books that are out there play mm -hmm. a huge role and just give you that broad spectrum don't hesitate to listen and to books on tape or short publications or articles social media blogs don't just depend on one source of reading open your mind up to all different avenues i can't think of a better way to end the conversation so i'll leave it at that chief Thank you so much yeah. for speaking with me today. And this has been a long time coming. So thank you for your patience. And I'm excited to share this with our listeners. I love it. Thank you so much, Patty. And I, I look forward to uh, hearing it as well. Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.